You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Mighty Father, we pray that by the grace and power of your Holy Spirit that we would see and hear, know and trust, love, worship, and glorify your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> a uh, popular bumper sticker back in the 1980s amongst Christians was, Jesus is my co-pilot. You don't see a whole lot of uh, Jesus is my co-pilot uh, bumper sticker these days. I suppose that bad theology has gone out of style. Um, ouch. Um, but uh, the Jesus is my co-pilot mentality, it tends to often naturally pervade the way that we think about God as sinners. The mentality is, I've got most things under control, but, you know, God comes along and helps me a little bit here and there, or I kind of know where I'm going, but sometimes at a crossroad, I might call on the Lord to give me some direction, or I've got the day-to-day handled, uh, but if there's a crisis, then God is welcome to come along and partner with me. Uh, the fundamental mindset of the Jesus is my co-pilot theology generally believes that we can handle life on our own, but that God serves as a good sidekick. Let me just say this candidly. If Jesus is just the co-pilot of life, then the vehicle is going to go off the road. If Jesus is just the co-pilot, then there is ultimately going to be a crash and burn. Uh, Isaiah 49, it reveals that God's design for our salvation and for our spiritual lives uh, is not a Jesus is the co-pilot orientation. We see the shortcomings of this mindset in Isaiah 48, where Israel had lived in in a partnership-type relationship with God, and it had ended in massive failure. In Isaiah 49, our sermon text, Uh, The servant, a divine human being, comes onto the scene, uh, and he will unilaterally achieve God's purposes and will save the day all by himself. God's design involves anything but Jesus as my co-pilot. In fact, it's more of a Jesus-take-the-wheel mentality where we surrender total control to God. So today I want to look at these two competing mentalities. Point one the Jesus is my co-pilot mentality, and point two, the Jesus take the wheel mentality. So the peace and stability that Jesus offers through the gospel, it comes to us when we totally surrender control of our lives to God. So first, the Jesus is my co-pilot approach. Now in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God's relationship with Israel as a nation at the corporate level did in ways function like a partnership. Note, I'm not talking about individual salvation. Individual salvation came by grace through faith. But as it pertained to the prosperity and the security of Israel, it largely functioned in a bilateral manner. If Israel would obey the Lord, then they would have peace and security. If Israel uh, would uphold their end of the covenant, then they would fulfill God's purpose to take the covenant of grace to the nations. However, spoiler alert, the joint venture goes badly, very, very badly. Uh, In the previous chapter, chapter 48, God characterizes Israel as obstinate. He says that they do not know 
and they do not see. Verse 18, he laments, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. If, if you had obeyed, if, if you upheld your end of the bargain, you can see the conditionality of this partnership. And here's the key statement in chapter 48. Verse 8, God says, For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before your birth you were called a rebel. This is critical to know because this demonstrates, first, that Jesus was never plan B. God knew from the beginning that the partnership was going to fail and that the servant would be necessary to come and fulfill his purpose to take the covenant of grace to the nations. Now, you might ask, why is it that God would enter into a partnership that he knew was going to fail? And this is speculation, so I say this with hermeneutic or interpretive humility, but I think it is to show that a Jesus is my co-pilot orientation to God, it just simply does not work. If Jesus is the co-pilot, the car goes off the road. Jesus must take the wheel. So thus, in chapter 49 in your bulletin, the servant, a divine human, comes on the scene. And so let's take a look at the servant and our second point, the Jesus take the wheel mentality. We're going to go through that text, so if you want to open up to it, it might be handy. At the beginning of Isaiah 49, a figure, the servant, speaks with authority. And it's important to note that Israel had formerly been referred to as God's servant. Uh, but there's a transition in the second half of Isaiah where this individual person who is divine is now referred to as the servant. The servant first says in verse 1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. Now, ordinarily, the prophets of the Old Testament, they would open by saying, Hear the word of the Lord. They were drawing attention to God. They are saying, Listen to God. But the servant is saying, Listen to me. Listen to me. Because he is claiming and demonstrating that he is God. The servant is God. And when he calls to the coastlands and to people from afar, he is calling to all of the people of the entire earth. And he is demonstrating that he has the authority to call every person to his attention by his power because he, in fact, is God. Well, simultaneously, the servant says this, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. So in addition to being divine, he's also a human being. He comes from a human mother. So it's obvious that the servant is pointing prophetically to the person Jesus Christ, who will be the divine person. So then in verse 2, the servant lists his attributes metaphorically. He says, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hands, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. These images of being a sharp sword and a polished arrow demonstrate that the servant possesses particular design. He has particular competency and resources and capabilities. And this is important to grasp as we think about the Jesus is my co-pilot versus the Jesus take the wheel mentalities because we are not designed for independence. We are not designed for autonomy. In fact, we're not even designed for partnership. 
for matters of salvation and sanctification and healing, we do not have a fraction of the resources or capabilities to flourish now or eternally. It is a demonstration of human arrogance, the arrogance of human sin, that we would suggest that Jesus could only be our co-pilot. You may remember in the Gospels the story of the transfiguration where Jesus is illuminated and Elijah and Moses appear and the disciples set up a chair for Jesus as if he's going to sit as a co-equal with Elijah and Moses. I mean, it's absurd. It's absurd. It's lunacy to think that Jesus would be on the same plane as any person as the living God. And yet that's the absurdity and lunacy of a Jesus is my co-pilot mentality. The idea that Jesus, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, who is perfectly pure, who is perfectly holy, who has never made a mistake, that we could be on the same plane as him, that he could just be a partner. It says of the Lord in Deuteronomy 32, 4, He is the rock. His ways are perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. The perfectly all-knowing, all-loving, completely loving person. That is who you want at the wheel of your life. And that is what is on offer to us every day through the gospel. That God takes the wheel of our life willingly and with great pleasure. Well, furthermore, the servant comes with a particular purpose. Verse 3 it says, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. He has this purpose to glorify God and to fulfill his grand purpose. And as it says in verse 5, he will first bring back Jacob to him, that Israel might be gathered. So part of the mission of the servant is to reconcile Israel to God. They have strayed from the Lord and they are estranged by their sin. But his mission is much greater than that. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The servant Jesus will bring all nations to the knowledge of God, and he will do it all on his own. The person, and he starts this, he starts this mission with his life, with his death, and with his resurrection. The person who has the capability to bring all nations to salvation in God he is certainly capable of managing any of the matters or the issues in our lives. Now in verse 4, you can see a tone of, of, of discouragement in the servant. The servant laments, but I said I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with God. The servant projects that his ministry and his message, that they will be resisted and rejected and we see in the New Testament that the Jewish teachers reject Jesus as the messianic servant. He's resisted. But quite honestly, the servant could be talking about you and me any given day in the sense that we do not naturally want to embrace the help and the leadership of God. That is the nature of sin, is that we do not want to hand over control to the Lord. And I found in my experience that there is this cycle in our lives where we resist God's control, and there's a crash and burn, and God's grace comes and he restores us, and then we hand over, to con hand over control to him. Uh, as he enters, he humbles us, he restores us, and he's teaching us 
how to surrender. And it's usually one section of our life at a time. In my early 20s, I had a 10-year plan for life. I had claimed ownership over career and vocation. I was going to go to graduate school, teach in the inner city, expand a nonprofit I had started. I was going to scale it. And if God wanted to come alongside me and bless my plans, he was more than welcome, right? Well, it didn't go so well. Uh, I went to go teach, step two, teach in the inner city, total crash and burn. The Lord humbled me and he showed me this was just not going to work. And so in that crash and burn, the slate was wiped clean. And I had no option but to surrender that area of my life to the Lord. And, you know, quite honestly, since then, that is just not an area of my life that I have worried about a whole lot. Like, the Lord has control. I'm happy. If he ever wants me to move, I'll move. But until then, like, that is his. I trust the Lord. Well, then he moved into another area of my life. That would be my dating life in my early 20s. Uh, I was... I was on point. I was in the market. I was in control of that area. Didn't need any help. Well, if anyone had a ringside seat for that season of my life would know that it was an unmitigated disaster. I was that friend you have whose dating life was always tumultuous and always just drama, drama, drama. And it crashed and burned. And then the Lord came in, restored me, taught me how to trust him, and, and it just actually became pretty normal. That less drama, more friendly. And that's just the way it tends to work. Uh, a lot of times, we uh, feel like uh, life is crashing and burning, and we're afraid, and, and we almost feel like God's against us. But in fact, those are the moments when Jesus is actually entering into our life. It appears like it's a disaster, but in reality, the Lord is entering in. He's showing us that we cannot, we cannot live in partnership with him. We must trust him alone. And he restores us and he teaches us how to surrender. And he leads us into peace and freedom. So in these moments, uh, when it feels like life is going off the road, how do we trust the Lord? Um, we look at his competencies and his capability in his word. Look at verse 7. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Now, there's this promise here that kings will come and worship the servant. And, you know, we're in Epiphany season, the liturgical calendar, and, and so we, part of what we celebrate is the coming of the wise men. And a lot of times we think, oh, the wise men, man, that's cool. That's why we give presents. They brought presents to Jesus. When in reality, the coming of the wise men is fulfilling this prophecy. It is showing that kings from hundreds of miles away come and they bow down and they worship a baby, a baby in Bethlehem. Uh, it's the fulfillment of a prophecy. So who has the capability of making a prediction 700 years beforehand that something as radical as kings coming to worship a baby will come to pass? God does. God does. The one who has all of the capability and all of the resources. We look to his words most prominently, most prominently at the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Who has the power to die and come back to life? Who has power over life and death? God does. God has the capabilities and the resources. And this is our invitation. This is what we look to, to surrender our lives over and over again to the care of Jesus. So take heart. You and I were not meant to be co-pilots. Let Jesus take the wheel and experience the peace, comfort, and relief of the gospel. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we pray that you would glorify yourself in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.